listener production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. Join us each week as we break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now and what's likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr. Keith Souter, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Sasha Barbagat. I'm a journalist. This week on the podcast, we are discussing whether we've learned anything from climate change authors and their books published 60 years ago. Keith, the 1960s was a time of enormous change and upheaval. How much traction was the issue of the environment getting during the decade? It was a remarkable time, having lived through it. I'm a dinosaur, so I remember all of this. Some of these are actually friends of mine here, including the author of of this article, Herbert Giraudet, who's just written it in The Ecologist, a British magazine. So if you go back to 1945, the United Nations is created. There's no reference to the environment at all in the UN Charter. And so you then get this remarkable recovery from all the destruction of World War II and the Great Depression. So you get a high level of economic growth. And then in the late 1960s, 20 years on from the ending of World War II, you get certain figures who are saying this rapid economic growth will have environmental consequences. And that, of course, eventually led to the 1972 Stockholm Conference, which was 50 years ago. Mm. And what is interesting is that the Australian government decided to be represented, but they didn't have a minister for the environment. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> Whoops. So the government had to create this new minister, yeah. who was the late Peter Howson, not Hewson, Peter Howson, who lived in Melbourne and Melbourne MP. So Australia was represented in Stockholm. Eventually. But eventually <laughs> by, by this newly minted minister for the environment. It just shows how new everything was in those days. Now, of course, everybody has a, a ministry of the environment, mm. etc. So the bureaucracy seems to be in place. It's just that it's not achieving what we were hoping for back in the 1960s. So in the 1960s, there was a great feeling of optimism. There was a lot of money because of all this economic growth. And there was a belief that we could somehow save the earth. That was, in fact, the slogan that we used in Stockholm in 1972. So you had, leading up to the Stockholm Conference, a number of books being published and also after the conference, which all took the view that, you know, we, we could save the earth. Now, when I talk to my young students from Boston University, there's overwhelmingly a sense of despair mm. that we have wasted 60-odd years when we could have been reinventing the earth. Instead, we've wasted it, the American war in Afghanistan, for example. So we can find money for war, but not for peace and not for saving the environment. In this article that you sent me, it delves into a bunch of different books and publications. One I wanted to touch on was Silent Spring by Rachel Carlson. Can you give us a quick overview of what that was about? Yeah, so this is one of the pioneering books. So Rachel Carlson was very concerned about the excessive use of fertiliser. So Silent Spring referred to the fact that the birds had died because they'd eaten the insects, which in turn had been poisoned. You have the insects being poisoned, the birds eating the insects, and then they get poisoned. So there's nobody there to herald the spring. That's sad. No sounds of spring. with, And so that hence the phrase. Mm. And so she publicised this whole issue of the excessive use of certain herbicides, etc., what were called in those days biocides, you know, killing life. Yay. And so it was certainly a bold new book. You know, we have been spraying stuff on vegetables and we continue to do it to this day. There is 
in New South Wales, a very interesting study, which has not been easily available to the public, looking at the market gardens around the Sydney Basin and the people who work in them and their ability to read what's on the labels. Right. And the answer is they can't read what's on the labels. So it may well be that those of us who are getting our vegetables from the local areas are actually eating vegetables that are excessively covered with fertiliser. It's such a because worry. Because the workers can't read, you know, use this stuff sparingly or whatever. Yeah. So it continues to be an issue. And so full marks to Rachel Carson for her bringing this to our attention and getting us to think about this. One of the ironies that also has come out of this is that in the United States they then banned the use of certain poisons but not the manufacture of them. So you get American manufacturers selling the stuff. Somewhere else. Somewhere else. And then buying the vegetables that are grown with this. So that's what's called the circle of poison. Wow. So it's American pesticides that are banned for use in the United States but sold in Latin America. And then you buy the produce that is produced with these pesticides. I shouldn't laugh, but it's ridiculous, isn't it? And this is the issue that keeps coming across in this article, that Mm. we've had so many warnings which we have chosen to ignore. Yeah, and Carlson ended the book saying there was hope if we implemented these policies, if we better regulated the use of things like pesticides. But have we seen that happen anywhere? Well, Herbert Schroeder in his article, talks about this tension between despair and applied hope. In other words, it's a very gloomy situation, but it can somehow be turned around. So she, in a sense, set the pattern for later styles of what the academics would call the meta-narrative. In other words, that when you're writing a book, you you balance out this notion of despair because of whatever's happening, be it pesticides or exhaustion of raw materials, but also applied hope. Mm. What about the book by EF Mission? It was called The Costs of Economic Growth. What sort of issues did that cover that can relate to our relationship with the environment today? So Mission was an economist at the London School of Economics. In fact, died only a few years ago. I think he lived almost to be 100. Wow, good on him. (laughs) So he had a good long life and it was a pioneering book. And so what he was looking at is that as the human population was expanding, you get more technologies, you've got growing affluence, et cetera, they have unintended spillover effects Mm. on the environment. So the manufacturers don't set out to wreck the environment but they do have this impact. And Mission was one of the first to draw our attention to this. And I've got to say, this is around the time I was studying economics and we never touched this book. No, I bet. It was not on our reading list. Mm -mm. The ideas that were circulating at that time was obviously economic growth is good. Whatever problems you encounter will be solved by simply having more money. Yeah, well, Mission was one of the first pioneers of so-called inconvenient truths. Did his ideas get much traction with governments and policymakers? No. (laughs) And as I say, those of us who were studying economics at the time in the late 1960s, we never even got the book on our reading list. Yeah. So it's another example of kind of a missed opportunity. A missed opportunity. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. Thanks for your company. This week's episode, we are discussing whether we've learnt the lessons from past warnings about climate change and the environment. Keith, we touched on it before. The first ever UN Global Conference on the Environment was held in 1972 in Stockholm, so 50 years ago now. What was the catalyst for this groundbreaking event? Ironically, it was pollution from Great Britain. Dirty 
pollution from Britain was being blown across the North Sea. Mm -hmm. And so the Swedish government said they'd be willing to host this conference on the environment. So I say governments didn't actually have ministers for the environment in the case of Australia, or they were just getting underway, which was the case in the United States. Richard Nixon, whom we all hate, right, (laughs) he was the one who signed into law the the US Environmental Protection Act, full marks to him, by uh, endorsing this. So the Americans were prepared for the conference, probably not prepared to carry through on the big changes that are required. But nonetheless, they certainly had a, a minister for the environment using our language. Off the back of this conference was uh, the Stockholm Declaration and Action Plan for the Human Environment. Can you talk us through some of the things that were included in that and did we actually see any progress? I think we have because it certainly put the environment on the map. As I say, governments like Australia's were obliged to create a minister for the environment and it's part of the talking up process. So 1972 for me was one of the key years in the sense that we had a lot of things that were changing public consciousness. So, yes, there were certainly major changes that were getting underway at that time. But remember, it was only a a diplomatic conference, uh, and to use technical language, it had no plenipotentiary powers. In other words, it it didn't have any powers to bind any government, but they did produce, as you say, this Stockholm Declaration, and you had a number of principles to guide the peoples of the world in the preservation and enhancement of nature. But it didn't define ways of countering the prevailing global trends towards ever greater environmental destruction. But it was a useful start. Mm. And for those of us who are involved in it, unfortunately, having referred to studying economics in the late 60s, June 1972 is when I had to be back in England for the (laughs) final exam. So I was actually on a government committee preparing for Stockholm, but didn't actually make the journey across to (laughs) Stockholm because I was sitting my final exams in June 1972. But it was a great experience. I say there was so much optimism mm. that we were somehow going to save the earth. Now, 50 years later, I don't have that same degree of optimism. You know, I'm a young person myself. I've grown up understanding climate change and the potential, it, well, the realised impacts that's already happening. And I've got to say, watching governments from all around the world get together and talk and then sign a piece of paper and then walk away, and it feels like it never really eventuates into real change, you know, was this kind of the first example of that where it's like, all right, let's all get together and talk and then let's go back to our countries and do nothing? That was the first of a decade of mega conferences that Mm. had gone so well that people said, well, look, let's have one on population. And there's a whole series of them. I, I was the chair of the Australian Preparatory Committee for the 1979 UN Conference on Technology for Development. Yeah, right. That was in Vienna. Okay. So during that decade, I got to see some of the world mm. in all these conferences. I think now people are just conferenced out. Yeah. But there are just so many conferences taking place now. But it was a huge novelty in 1972 and certainly helped to put the environment on the agenda. But as you say, you've done the consciousness raising, you've put the ideas into circulation, you've now got to implement them. Mm. And then suddenly you run up against the various interest groups who say, no, we're not going to go ahead with those plans because we've got our current jobs to think about. These days as well, just staying with this topic of the conferences, we see opposition to them. People saying, well, why are we sending representatives from our country there? Was that the case with this or was it kind of the environment was a different kettle of fish then, wasn't it? It was indeed. And I think people were very alert to the issues of the environment. And so it was part of this change in consciousness. 
So people like yourself grow up thinking, well, people have always cared about the environment. Well, I tell you, a fish doesn't know that it swims in water. Mm-hmm. And I can remember a time when if you talk to people about the environment, they would mean historic buildings <laughs> and polluted rivers. Lovely. Let's also discuss, um, going back to the article, this best-selling ecology book of all time, a report called The Limits to Growth, sold more than 12 million copies in 37 languages. What issues around the environment did that one discuss? So this is a report to the Club of Rome, and I know Herbert Gerarday through the pair of us being members of the Club of Rome. Mm. And the book was described in this article as being a bold exercise in modelling global environmental trends. Now, you've got your your mobile phone there and you just part of your anatomy, really, you carry it yeah, around everywhere. everywhere. But I tell you, you go back to the late 60s, early 70s, and all these computers coming along were a novelty. They're mm. very basic, but you could use them to do these huge calculations to model global trends so that the computers were able to do brilliant modelling Pretty primitive by today's standards, but going back 50 years, they could look at the interactions between humans and the natural world. And in particular, the report focused on population, agriculture, natural resources, industrial production, and pollution. And they produced a number of different scenarios. One of them actually talks about a pretty grim future for us. I think that even though it was a fairly primitive computer by today's standards and even the sophistication of your mobile phone, Nonetheless, they got it right in one of the scenarios of Mm. looking at a pretty grim future. Very controversial book, very controversial. It ran contrary to the optimism that people uh, felt. You know, they thought that we could solve every problem if we spend enough money on it. But it forced the economists and the financiers, business leaders and politicians to recognise that perhaps we cannot have unlimited, continuous economic growth. Remember, this is the debate, as we speak, is going on in Britain at this very moment, Mm -hmm. you know, with the Prime Minister and her Chancellor of the Exchequer, Treasurer, coming up with ideas what they think can guarantee economic growth. But maybe we're coming to the end of having high rates of growth. So one of the the other members of the Club of Rome is Ugo Bardi, who also gets a mention in this article. And he's actually looked at the exhaustion of the non-renewable resources and the way in which we're just consuming so many compared with where we were only 50 years ago. It feels like, though, you know, when I hear you say that maybe it's time that we need to look at slowing down economic growth, my brain immediately goes to the people who are benefiting off that economic growth, and will they ever allow that to happen? Well, like, is that we're the ones who are benefiting off it. Mm. Look at us. We, we live a nice lifestyle here. In due course, you're going to be getting old, and you'll need a superannuation which means that you need those investments Mm. in mining companies and other things. So who's going to look after you in old age? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know who to believe now. What do I do? So this is the risk you run because, you know, we do need to have continuous economic growth to support an ageing population as well as, of course, today's production figures anyway. But even long term, and I'm looking at you because you're so much younger, (laughs) you're going to be worried about your investments For another half a century at least. Mm -hmm. You know, you could be one of those Australian women who are going to live to 120. Oh, God, I hope not. (laughs) I don't want to live that long. So you've got a long way ahead of you. Yeah. And so you're relying on your investments and economic growth to keep you going through your old age. Yeah. So from that point of view, you want to have continuous economic growth. But then you've got others who are coming along saying it's unwise to think that we can continue 
to maintain a high level of economic growth. Just look at China at the moment. Remember, China has grown faster than any other economy in world history, even faster than Britain that invented the Industrial Revolution in 1750. And yet you look at the Chinese uh, economic growth rates and they are slowing down. They've overbuilt cities and railway systems, etc. So they've got a lot of surplus capacity which they're not able to use. And, of course, one of the good bits of news compared with where we were 50 years ago was that we seem to have solved the population problem, but now it's created another problem for us. So the previous population problem, which was highlighted in a number of these reports that we're Mm. looking at, 50 years ago was the idea that we were going to have too many people living in the world. Now we've reached the point where we're actually running out of people. So China has gone now beyond peak population and is seeing a decline in new births in China. So a society needs basically 2.1 children for each woman, really, to maintain the population numbers. So the point one, you know, you've got the replacement of the two parents and the point one is to cover any accidents or premature deaths, etc. And yet most countries in the world outside of Africa don't come up to 2.1, including Australia, I might say. Mm. Now, we have, until COVID came along, saved the day by importing people. We've got so many people interested in coming into Australia. So we've actually solved one problem, which is having too many people, Mm -hmm. but now we've got people saying, oh, no, we don't have enough people. (laughs) Everyone's getting old. Everyone's getting old. (laughs) So in Japan, they live the longest amount of time and they've got an ageing workforce. And so how are you going to look after that ageing population if you're running out of young people? Now, the Japanese response is to say we're going to do it by robots. Yeah, well. But there may be limitations there. We just don't know. So, And this is what the Club of Rome talked about, the, the problematic. In other words, that you can't look at these issues as, to use a technical term, discrete issues, issues that stand on their own feet. You've got to see them as to how they interact with one another. So, for example, we're all in favour of avoiding childhood deaths, mm. and so we want babies to live longer. But then that gives you the population problem, right? So one feeds into another. But then if you can get the babies to live longer, then parents outside of Africa, Africa is now the exception, but the parents in in Europe or Asia, et cetera, seeing their children live beyond childhood will then have fewer children because they don't need so many. Yeah, they don't need the replacement. So that then leads into the issue for China and the running out of people. Feels like there's no answer. It feels like we could go around in circles talking about, you know, you know, we're talking about the environment with this one and we can't keep the economy growing, but we need the economy to grow. <laughs> should we all give up and just live in villages on the land? And Well, it's funny you should say that because <laughs> <laughs> also in 1972, we got the blueprint yes. for survival published to coincide with the Stockholm Conference. And it picked up the arguments from the limits to growth to which we've just referred, but then goes on to propose specific scenarios by which the breakdown of human society and the disruption of the planet's life support systems could be forestalled. And so this uh, British initiative looked at a world of small-scale, largely de-industrialised communities. Mm. Uh, Life would be more fulfilling. Agricultural and business practices would be more likely to be ecologically sound and smaller populations leading more local lives would reduce human environmental impacts. Bad news for the airline industry, uh-huh. of course. <laughs> and travel and, <laughs> and all travel. those people. But that would be one way in which you could reinvent the earth by going back to where we were 
in the Middle Ages, but with improved medical techniques, etc. Sounds tempting. After this discussion today, Keith, I think that sounds like maybe our best option. <laughs> We'll see how we go. Just to wrap us up as well, you know, all these warnings starting in the 60s predominantly in terms of published works, it feels like society is doomed to repeat the same mistakes over and over again despite the warnings. Would that be your assessment? I I fear that that there is a high degree of repetition in history. I mean, if you look back at some of the societies in, say, Latin America or even Egypt, we see how very sophisticated societies nonetheless can be wiped out by dramatic weather events, etc. So you do get a certain degree of cycles in history. History may not repeat itself, but it rhymes. Mm. Thank you very much for your time this week, Keith. Thank you. Global Truths is presented by Dr Keith Souter and me, Sasha Barber-Gatt. Audio production by Niall Fernandez. Theme and original music by Matt Nikolic. Listener.